0: Welcome to Therapy on the Cutting Edge, a podcast for therapists who want to be up-to-date on the latest advancements in the field of psychotherapy. I'm your host, Dr. Keith Sutton, a psychologist in the San Francisco Bay Area and the director of the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy. Today I'll be interviewing Jackie Persons, PhD, who is a psychologist in private practice in Oakland, California, providing cognitive behavioral therapy. She is the director of the Oakland Cognitive Behavioral Therapy Center and has published numerous research articles and books, including the case formulation approach to cognitive behavioral therapy. Dr. Persons is the past president of the Association of Cognitive Behavioral Therapists, is a professor at the University of California, Berkeley, and created a video series for training clinicians through the American Psychological Association on the treatment of depression using cognitive behavioral therapy. Let's listen to the interview.
1: Well, welcome, Jackie. Thank you, Keith. I appreciate the invitation.
0: Yeah, thanks for joining us today. So, uh, Jackie, I'm uh, in the Bay Area, and you're also in the Bay Area. You're one of the big CBT folks, and um, I've gotten some consultation from you on some of the CBT teachings that I've done. And I know you uh, have a consult group that some of my interns who are associated nonprofit have gone to, and I've really, you know, had a, a great success and kind of really enjoyed all your your work. And I was also involved in one of the research projects you were doing at kind of um, looking at outcome and so on and feedback monitoring in sessions um, some time ago. So would love to hear a little bit about kind of yeah what you're doing and um, what how you got to where you're working and what you're working on now.
1: Thank you. I appreciate your interest. The thing I'm especially passionate about right now, and I'm devoting more time to, is um, helping clinicians think about whether they might have interest in and want to conduct some research in their uh, private practice setting. Um, Mm. It's something I have done all my life and fortunately i was trained to do research so i have some research skills although after so many years after my training my skills at data analysis for example are mm-hmm. are weak and also i'm learning that i'm not very good at managing databases so mm-hmm. i always need help but one of the things about research is you can always get help and people who have the skills you don't can help but the thing about clinicians in practice is, they see a lot of patients of a wide range of types of psychopathology, especially in these days when we're very attentive to these issues of race,
2: mm-hmm.
1: culture, diversity, stigma. Mm-hmm. The fact that clinicians in the community are taking care of these patients Mm -hmm. And if they're doing evidence-based practice, they're collecting data to monitor their patient's progress in treatment. And they may be doing, we could hope they're doing evidence-based treatments. If they're doing that, even a single case, they are collecting data that is useful to the larger research community. Because Mm -hmm. if you think about it, and some people who um, are especially attentive to these issues of race and diversity and equity Mm
2: -hmm.
1: are aware that most of the empirically supported treatments that are currently available in our field Mm -hmm. were developed by white people.
2: Yeah.
1: And the randomized trials that were conducted involve a lot of white people. Mm -hmm. And so we don't have very much data on do black and brown and other diverse populations benefit from these treatments? Do they find the treatments meet their needs? Mm-hmm. Do they find that the tree- oh.
0: Hi, Jackie.
1: Data yeah, That can make a contribution to science. Hi. Yep. Hi,
0: Jackie. I'm sorry, it froze up there for a moment. Uh, apologies. Ah. When you were, uh, can we go back to you're saying, um, not really sure if these treatments meet those needs for for people diverse.
1: Yes, and for these people from other races and cultures, do these treatments meet their needs? Um, Do they seem culture friendly? Do they seem like they're the kind of treatments the person would want to or feel comfortable engaging it? We don't have that information. Mm-hmm. We do know that dropout rates for minorities is higher than mm-hmm. for white people. So maybe the treatments aren't very culturally, what's the term, relevant. or,
2: um.
1: Um, And so then ten... Talented clinicians are probably modifying these treatments to make them more suitable for these patients. If they would want to collect some data showing a beautiful, successful outcome in response to some adaptations the clinician made, that would be a, a contribution to the science. And so I'm just trying to say to clinicians, you have many contributions that you can make to science. That is just one example.
0: Yeah. And I know for you, um, you know, and and originally one of the the significant books that you wrote was, well, they're all significant, but the around kind of the treatment planning, because you know, that in evidence-based treatment, oftentimes it's very kind of focused on a particular diagnosis and, you know, kind of the, the clients that are being seen for that treatment model or that research are kind of narrowed down. And in the real world, we're seeing a lot of clients that have a lot of comorbidities both, um, you know, comorbidities with different uh, mental health issues. But like, again, as you're also saying, there's a lot of diversity in clients um, uh, around culture, around race, around uh, sexual orientation, gender identity, um, uh, socioeconomic status, uh, religion and ability and all these kinds of things. Um, So, yeah, tell me a little bit about are you um, because I know that you're really big on doing research in private practice and kind of, you know, that's. That's always been an aspiration of mine. Um, going out of grad school, I was like, oh, I'm going to do all this research and kind of, and it takes a lot to do it. I, I haven't, you know, it's, it's a lot of kind of organization and keeping track and kind of managing all of these things. And, um, yeah, I would love to hear kind of what you're doing around that.
1: Well, the kind of research, I, like I'm, right, I'm working on a paper on this topic right now. I have mm-hmm. a plan to submit it to the American psychologist. It's titled how to do research in your private practice.
2: Mm, Um, perfect.
1: The the kind of thing I would encourage clinicians to approach is related to the point you made, which is research can involve a lot of organizational details and cumbersome things. We would like to try to minimize that. Mm -hmm. And my thought about the best way to minimize that is to base your research on data that you are already collecting to mm-hmm. guide your treatment
2: mm-hmm. and
1: I'm sure you Keith are, are teaching your young people and yourself you know to collect progress monitoring data yeah. to monitor progress at every session and if you do that for long enough and it doesn't even have to be very long after a while you have a lot of gorgeous data.
0: Mm-hmm. Yeah we use the outcome rating scales and the session rating scales from Scott Miller and Barry Duncan Beautiful in my session outcome as well as feedback, um, you know, and so have a lot of data that's just not necessarily crunched.
1: Exactly. And you have data, you have both process data related to the alliance, I think, and Mm -hmm. outcome data. And of course, our field would predict that the one is related to the other. Mm -hmm. And we might expect that there's a paper published in the JCCP recently showing that improved alliance in one session leads to reduced symptoms in the following session. Oh, Amazing. Wow. Anyway, you have the data to test that hypothesis because you have session by session by session data. And in the randomized trials, which of course are designed to answer different questions, but these trials, they're bringing these patients in for to do these empirically supported treatments, and they're typically not measuring progress on a weekly basis. So Mm -hmm. they don't have the intensive data uh, that you have, um, Mm -hmm. which actually are more valuable than you might think. So if you would find somebody who could crunch your data for you, you probably have a paper, Keith.
0: Yeah, yeah, right. Now, tell me a little bit about your kind of trajectory in your career and how you got interested in CBT and evidence-based work and research. Um, I'd love to hear that story.
1: Well, I was, I was trained as a clinical psychologist. I started my PhD program in 1975 at the university of Pennsylvania. Uh And um, in the department of psychology, Marty Seligman was on the faculty then. Mm -hmm. Oh, he still is actually. Um, And so, and also then I started to hear about a new treatment that was being developed over in the Department of Psychiatry. Dr. Mm-hmm. Beck, mm-hmm. Kim Beck was in the Department of Psychiatry. In the psychology department, it was not very enthusiastically smiled upon for the students to go over to psychiatry and get training. Yeah. But I figured out how to do it. <laughs> <laughs> and so I went over to Beck's, uh, it was called the Depression Clinic then. The mood clinic maybe i don't even remember uh-huh. now do i it, which was in the gerard bank building and i got invited to participate in the practicum in the so i did a practicum over there i got invited to, to participate in the didactic training that was being done for the therapists who were learning cognitive therapy for one of the first randomized trials mm-hmm. and my teachers included art freeman I saw some patients in Beck's clinic. One of my very first clinical supervisors was David Burns. Oh, wow. So
0: amazing training.
1: Oh, my God. Later, I met a a local psychotherapist here in this local community who asked me, how did you get started? Why did you go over there? Because I could have gone over to um, Lester Laborski's psychodynamic psychotherapy training, which was also at Penn. Mm. and Lester Laborski is an amazing person. I don't know. I went over to Beck's place. I think certainly cognitive behavior therapy is more congenial to my own way of operating and thinking. But as I was telling my colleague, here once i said oh i think one of the reasons i did it is because i could see that they were focused on collecting data and developing a a treatment that was supported by data you know they're Mm -hmm. doing these randomized trials to evaluate the efficacy of their treatment i thought that is the kind of treatment that i want to learn Mm.
0: yeah something that's showing efficacy
1: yes i want i don't want to learn a treatment where we don't have efficacy data i just don't want to do it Mm. Um, which my colleague was surprised at because I don't think many clinicians think about that when they decide what treatment they're going to learn. But part of why I'm saying this is if you're a young person trying to figure out what treatments you're going to learn, I would suggest, well, think about what your values are. But to me, one of my values is science Mm -hmm. evidence-based Learning psychotherapies is extremely demanding. Don't learn therapies yeah. that do not have an efficacy, an efficacy database, please. Mm. Well, I yeah. shouldn't we say that. Think <laughs> about your think about your value. Anyways, science and data was one of my values, and that's part of why I learned cognitive behavior therapies. Is what I'm saying.
0: Oh, great, great. And then, yeah, how did um, yeah, where did you go from there? From um, doing that kind of training, uh, with Beck.
1: So I was, so I got some training with, ben. well, I attached myself to Burns and David was very generous with his time. So mm-hmm. even though after my practicum ended, he had a weekly group supervision that happened on Friday afternoons at four o'clock. Most of us, mm-hmm. we come come in the room, we're just exhausted. Uh, By the time we leave, we're full of energy. I don't know if you've ever been to one of Dr. Burns's trainings, but- I
0: haven't actually, I've been wanting to go.
1: Ah.
0: Great things.
1: David Burns is one of the best teachers I have ever met and he had a lot of energy. So we had a lot of fun. So I basically attached myself to David Burns and I went to his clinical supervision for pretty much the whole time I was in graduate school. Mm. Then I did, I did my internship training at hospital of the university of Pennsylvania, which I did just Mm. because it was convenient I didn't want to move out of town for my internship. By that time I was married. My husband was uh, an economist on the faculty at Penn. Uh So I wanted to stay right at home. That was kind of a challenging experience. Department of Psychiatry. Very psychodynamically oriented. But anyway. (laughs) And then (laughs) after that, I had one year postdoc training. And I went over to Joseph Wolpe's clinic. Oh, wow. I went to the Behavior Therapy Unit, Eastern Uh Pennsylvania Psychiatric Institute. The director of the clinic was Joe Wolpe. And one of the core faculty was Edna Foa. Uh And Gail Steckety was there. Jonathan Grayson was there. Wow. Can you imagine?
0: That's amazing training.
1: I thought I had died and gone to heaven. (laughs) So I got all that fabulous clinical training and I was still interested in research. And so I was collecting different types of data.
2: Mm-hmm. And
1: then my husband, who's an academic, went on the academic job market. There was some, I thought about going on the academic job market, but I wasn't really ready to go. I didn't no. have, um, so I came to California and started a private practice and uh, And started writing up some of my research and doing some of my research in my private practice Mm -hmm. and um, I have a lot of fun so and with
0: your and with the research that you're doing in the private practice were you was that based on kind of um, you know the the symptom measuring that you were doing and kind of looking at outcomes and such and kind of of your own um, uh, accord
1: yeah so as you pointed out I started developing some ideas about individualized case formulation Mm -hmm. as a way of personalizing the treatments from the um, random, the protocols that were studied in the randomized trials. Part of that I learned to do when I was on the clinical faculty over at UCSF, when I worked with Ricardo Munoz, and Ricardo ran the depression clinic over at San Francisco General Hospital. Mm -hmm. Those patients, have a lot of diversity mm. <laughs> they're lower income patients disadvantaged patients minorities mm. frequently um often from his- the hispanic community in the area all the patients that were seen in the depression clinic were medically ill uh-huh. so i so i started developing my ideas about personalizing the treatment mm and how to use a case formulation to do that in a systematic way and then monitor outcome. Hmm. So I developed my approach to case formulation driven cognitive behavior therapy. And then after a number of years, I don't know, I guess a lot of years I had enough outcome data. I published a paper. Uh You could think of it as a single trial. Do patients who come into my office. And I think some of those patients were also treated by my colleagues in my group practice. Do they have outcomes and that we're giving them case formulation driven cognitive behavior therapy? Do they have outcomes comparable to the depressed patients treated with a protocol in the Mm -hmm. randomized trials? Mm
2: -hmm.
1: I mean, it's not hard to do the data analysis. You get a plot, you look at the outcomes, and you just look at it. And you know what? Those patients did well. So I published a nice paper. It was published in Behavior Research and Therapy. Two of the Mm -hmm. graduate students at UC Berkeley helped me with it. So.
0: Oh, great. Wonderful. And can you say more, can you describe your individualized um, case formulation approach?
1: That is, a, I have to learn how to answer that question briefly. So <laughs> I s- start with an, the formulation driven approach. First of all, focuses on the whole patient,
2: mm-hmm.
1: not just a disorder. hmm Notice the empirically supported treatments treat a disorder. Yeah. Right? Cognitive therapy for depression, cognitive processing therapy for PTSD.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Usually, the patient who's in your office or my office has more than one disorder. Yeah. So, I want to know what all the disorders are. Often, the patient also has a number of psychosocial problems, like maybe there's a marital problem.
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Maybe the patient is underemployed maybe the patient has an outstanding tax bill from three years ago that he's avoiding dealing with irs on anyway i want to know about all that stuff yeah Uh, so i want to be thinking about the whole case i want to know about the medical problems Mm. I want to know about all of the psychiatric disorders and problems. I want to know about all the psychosocial problems. And then I want to develop a hypothesis about what are the disorders and problems and or the psychological mechanisms that are at the heart of the matter and that are driving a lot of the symptoms so I can focus Mm -hmm. my treatment on those. Mm.
0: Yeah, there's a, a particular approach. I, I'm forgetting the author. Um, it's one of the uh, treatments that work series um, on working with depression, and they uh, it sounds like they do a little bit of similar. They use the acronym BEAST to look at kind of the different factors. Um, they they came up with the term based on um, uh, they talk about the story about how Winston Churchill struggled with depression his whole life, and he used to call it his little black dog that followed him around. And they took this acronym BEAST to kind of break down to look at the, the B, the biological aspects, um, you know, health issues, um, yeah, uh, medical issues, uh, nutrition, sleep, drugs, and alcohol, that kind of stuff. E, the emotions, is a person emotionally avoidant? Are they kind of more, or are they more ruminative, um, kind of obsessive? Um, do they have emotional awareness, um, a, which is actions. So kind of your behavioral interventions or kind of uh, behavioral activation, you know, are you living a life that's worth living kind of, um, in direction of values, um, S is a situation, yeah. Situation, financial taxes or, um, yeah, uh, problems with a partner or family members. What's kind of adding to, or even decreasing the likelihood for depression, like having strong friendships or so on. And then T are the thoughts the cognition part of the cognitive behavioral therapy, because like, as you're saying, there's so much more and all these kind of aspects interplay. And so really kind of being able to look at all those pieces is so important in really kind of understanding how it all kind of integrates together and in, in what's going on with that particular client, uh-huh. um, and how to address that. Um, okay.
1: I'm gonna to have to look that up. Yes, it does sound right, um, right up my alley. Yeah,
0: I'm. I'm sure they probably they might even reference your work in there. Um, yeah, it's nice to kind of have that piece. Um, and I think Lazarus also. Um, I forget the acronym. It was like Basic ID or something like that. Also ah. did that kind of multimodal, you know, piece like you're talking about. You know, again, expanding it beyond just the um, the pure cognition um, and kind of bringing in that, those other pieces. Cause originally, right. It was, it was really just cognitive therapy and that later on the B got brought into it. Is that
1: right? Cause I know no, I was... the B was always there in Beck's cognitive therapy for depression. The B was always there.
2: Okay. Um,
1: the B was, um, subservient to the C in that the behavioral interventions were viewed as having the mission to, change thoughts Hmm. um but the first and the the b was the b was always there and in fact the behavioral activation treatment that was later developed by uh i'll think of his name but anyway came directly out of beck's cognitive therapy they just Mm -hmm. grabbed the b part and grew it also they they strengthened the Behavioral, functional, and analytic way of thinking about the B's. Right. But all that actually uh, came out of Beck's cognitive therapy, which does have a did have a B column, but part of the reason or B element, but but the reason you think of it as cognitive is because it was called cognitive therapy. Yeah. And even if you look at Beck's daily record of dysfunctional thoughts, which is the thought record. Mm -hmm. from the treatment there's no behavior column Mm -hmm. which in my opinion is a mistake so Mm -hmm. my thought record i want to know but what are the thoughts but i also want to know what are the behaviors yeah um and beck does talk about the triad the cognitive behavioral mood triad Mm -hmm. although maybe that's not what he uses the word triad to refer to but um yeah, But certainly the cognitions were primary.
0: Definitely. Yeah. And I, um, yeah, and I, I remember because I did a training at the uh, cognitive, uh, I've, Beck Institute, and yeah, that, that kind of talking about that cognitive uh, therapy aspect. And then that, uh, and I know that, right, the behavioral activation was kind of part of the depression treatment kind of right from the beginning, I think. And so it's always been kind of an interesting, you know, history of CBT and how it's evolved and, and also to how... I know now there's um, also kind of a focus on more of a transdiagnostic kind of approach. Um, And I know there's kind of, I think it's Barlow's universal approach. And I know Matt McKay is doing his mindfulness and emotions and this idea, like you're saying again, kind of treating, you know, dealing with the, the, the multiple Kind of issues that the clients are bringing in because rarely are they coming in like in a research study where they've only got depression and there's not kind of other factors or only have panic disorder or, or something like that and i think part of what you're saying too is you know and again in your approach of kind of creating an individualized plan is also looking at the social cultural aspects of both. How the person is being experienced, experiencing their environment and the culture that they're living in, and how that's interacting with their culture. And also, uh, how the therapist is thinking about how what they're bringing to the therapy is also interacting with the client's experience and cultural experience. Um, That's really important. Um, Definitely. Tell me a little bit, is that something that you've been focusing on more in your research lately, or is that something that, um, yeah, you've been thinking about, because you were mentioning in a lot of folks and having a diverse kind of uh, clients that they're working with in private practice and kind of all this kind of opportunity for data. um, Has that been something you've been thinking about more lately or writing about, or is that kind of, yeah.
1: Well, I'm very aware of it just by reading the newspaper, right, and seeing the, the shift that we hope our culture is. Is going through and of course I'm but I come from a very white privileged background so I'm not actually very knowledgeable in this area but I'm trying to learn. Um, I also have a private practice that has very few people of color Mm -hmm. by way of patients in my office so um, that's not very satisfying. Mm -hmm. I'm talking about working with one of the graduate students in the clinical science program at UC Berkeley, um, where the clinic sees a more diverse range of patients in the community. So I'm talking about supervising her next year. Sure. She's she's particularly interested in these issues of um, diversity and equity and how The treatments developed by white people might or might not be helpful to other people of other races. So I'm hoping we can do a single case study in the the clinic to think about some of these questions. I have to figure out what the questions are exactly, but I'm hoping Erica is going to know. (laughs)
0: Yeah, and I think too that I, I, so back uh, earlier in my training, I trained in motivational interviewing even way before graduate school and really love that model and really um, kind of uh, connected with it. And I think that oftentimes, you know, particularly with any, you know, when I, when I actually started, so I, had first gone into more kind of a more postmodern approach doing narrative therapy. I was really interested in family systems and I was working with families. And then I got training and working with couples, but I didn't have a good individual approach. So I ended up actually gravitating towards CBT, which kind of grew out of my uh, in undergraduate. My, my minor was in Eastern philosophy. And so I was wow. really interested in the way that kind of our perceptions of the world color, our experience. And then I went and did training with Albert Ellis when he was alive. uh, Training at the Beckons too with Judith and Aaron Beck. I did some training with Edna Foa. Uh, and Robin Walser and so on. And, and so in the beginning, when I was kind of doing CBT, I would say, you know, talking to my narrative friends, I'd I'd be saying, I'm doing CBT, but humanistic CBT. Um, And and because oftentimes I think there's an association with cognitive behavioral therapy as this kind of very rational, emotionless kind of, you know, perfunctory type of uh, approach, whereas, um, you know, really, and, and it's, taken some, some years for me to even kind of grow into just really that it it's, it's, it is very much about that human connection and particularly kind of more of these humanistic approaches, like motivational interviewing, kind of more of a, uh, Rogerian kind of, um, piece, these aspects kind of really mingle very well with the cognitive behavioral therapy, because ultimately you can't get any movement in cognitive behavioral therapy, unless you're able to make that connection with your client. And the client, you need to want to understand your client and your client needs to feel understood before you can even begin moving forward in the work. And I think particularly CBT most protocols start out with the psychoeducation and which is really about kind of connecting with our client finding out their understanding of the problem discussing our conceptualization of the problem and collaborating and kind of bringing those together to come up with some uh, a solution or a treatment that we're going to do together and i think that that's the place kind of where um you know also our our Uh, connection or kind of differences or uh, experiences culturally, socioeconomically, socially all kind of match up to be able to have a therapeutic relationship to begin moving forward um, in in whatever these treatments are, evidence-based or kind of or relational or whatever it might be. Um, So that kind of foundation of that, that therapeutic relationship I think is so significant.
1: Uh, it reminds me of, I could tell you two little stories. One is, uh, I ran an article in the New Yorker about 20 years ago. It was about uh, George Balanchine. Is that how you say his name? The choreographer. Mm-hmm.
2: Uh-huh. And, uh huh.
1: And he talked about how the way he would choreograph a new dance is he would bring in the dancers and he would say to them, show me what you can do. mm And then he would use what he could see what their strengths were to guide him as he choreographed the dance that these people would do. Mm -hmm. So to me, part of what you're talking about and motivational interviewing, I think is particularly strong in this, you know, they view the patient as the best expert on his or her situation. Anyway. So what I try to do with my people is, you know, show me what you can do. What are you already, like often I'll try to lay out the situation and offer a little bit of a conceptualization, but tell me like, what are you already doing to Mm -hmm. solve this problem? And then I'll try to work with them to figure out, is it helping? Can I help you do more of it? Is Mm -hmm. it not quite right? Can I help you tune it up? But you know, how to help people take what they're already bringing and do more of it or switch it up or maybe they need to learn new things in which case i'm happy to teach them but let's start with what you're already bringing and each person is bringing his or her own things to the table so that's one thing i always try to do in my therapies that has to do with being responsive to what the person is bringing Mm-hmm. so that was that was one story what was my other story that i wanted to this is the problem i start with one story <laughs> and then i can't remember the other one but i'll remember it no problem. what are we talking about oh
0: So yeah so with the collaborative piece i mean i think part we're talking about you know kind of the the work and you're thinking about kind of working with a diverse clientele and you know about kind of that um you know kind of collaboration and kind of, you know, moving forward. and Oh, I remember. Yeah.
1: Okay. So here, so I had a patient who was in my office who did not get very much help. She had big ticket OCD and somehow mm-hmm. I, I just wasn't able to help her very much. And I felt like she needed more intensive treatment. So I sent her off to an intensive treatment center and then she came back and she wasn't all that much better actually even Mm. though she had gotten a lot more help. I should probably be offering a little more detailed conceptualization as to why I think she needed a more intensive treatment. But anyway, I'm going to skip that part. So then what happened was she did all this intensive treatment, but when she came back to me, she wasn't all that much better. Mm. So then I called the therapist, the provider, and I said, okay, so could I learn from you a little bit more about what happened in this intensive treatment? Mm-hmm. And the therapist said to me, well, I delivered this intervention, and I delivered this intervention, and then we did the exposure, and then she learned mindfulness, and then she this. Actually, she probably didn't say she learned. She said, I delivered this intervention. I delivered this. So that I hear you saying you delivered these. The question I have for you is, did the patient learn anything?
2: Mm-hmm. Yeah.
0: Was there so the engagement?
1: The, what's the engagement? But also like did the information get into her head and did mm-hmm. she have anything change in her way she was thinking and behaving as a result of your delivering the intervention? Yeah. And, that, and something you said about, probably about feedback
2: mm-hmm.
1: reminded me, you know, cause we want to not just deliver the intervention. We want to hear from the person. Okay. Does this make sense to you? Does it seem like something you could use? Do you want to try it? talk to me about what happens when you try it. Is it helpful? Is it not helpful? Is it harmful? Like give me some feedback because then Mm. the feedback, which is data, Uh I'm gonna use the feedback to figure out what's my next move. Mm -hmm. Maybe that intervention isn't gonna help you because it doesn't make sense to you and you can't really, I don't know, but using feedback. So there's kind of a back and forth dynamic process. It's not just that you're the person and I'm like giving you all these interventions and now you're fixed, goodbye.
0: Yeah, exactly. So, when well, that feedback's so important. I, I know in the uh, common factors research, uh, especially with the Scott Miller, Barry Duncan work, Scott Miller talks about how they did one research uh, uh, project where they the, the clients were filling out the feedback forms, but then they weren't giving that data to the therapist. And then after I think five or six sessions, they gave that data, and then actually the therapist shifted and just by getting the feedback, they were able to increase outcome by 60%, regardless of their theoretical orientation. Um, and particularly, yeah, I'm, I'm, I think I'm thinking too about like, especially with a client that I had with OCD, that they never really kind of got on board with a work they were doing in an intensive program. So they were just kind of white knuckling it through their exposure. Yep. They were doing their exposures, but they yep. hadn't gotten the sense of I need to lean into this. I need to right. embrace the anxiety and really feel this. Instead, they'd kind of sit there and sit long enough till the anxiety went down, but then they go, good, that's over with.
2: I got rather through than it.
0: kind of that engaging with it. And I think sometimes the when I originally when I was back in my pre-doc, I was working with a family and and i felt like i was just kind of dragging them along and i realized cuz you know even though we had kind of gotten on the same page in the first session that didn't just carry through every single session that we needed to be recontracting reconnecting to kind of what we're working on the steps that we're taking and making sure that kind of we're walking side by side rather than me getting ahead and kind of trying to pull the other person along
1: dragging them along behind yeah, you yeah
0: cuz that's that's not gonna that that does not a <laughs> good the therapy make um, you know, because it really is that partnership about kind of walking on that that journey together. Um, great. And I was actually seeing you, uh, there was a recent article that you published also on kind of therapists and keeping up with kind of the recent research. Um, uh, do you know which
1: one I'm referring to? I believe it was a paper that uh, Kim Wilson was the first author on and it was published in The Behavior Therapist. And it was an article about how, if you're a clinician, what are the strategies that you can use to keep up to date with the literature, which is a hard task.
2: Yeah.
1: It's hard to fit it into a busy clinical life.
0: And I actually, I didn't have a chance to read it. I actually saw it while I was just perusing your bio before our meeting. And I was wondering if you could speak a little bit about that. Cause I know again, for me, and you know, I think the, the goal of this podcast is for therapists that are really interested in keeping up but sometimes yeah. we have all the time to, to read all the papers and the new books and so on. Um, wh- what is your advice or what are your thoughts on what uh, would be helpful to clinicians wanting to stay kind of up to date?
1: Well, first of all, congratulations to you for being devoted to trying to stay up to date. It's part of being an evidence-based practitioner which attention to the evidence and the evidence changes. So then we're mm-hmm. gonna wanna change what we're doing so kudos to you for being motivated to do that um kim wilson and i and some of the others who worked on that article did so as a result of a project we were doing and i'm still doing at the society for a science of clinical psychology which is a fantastic Mm -hmm. group Mm -hmm. and um I I had up a committee called Committee on Science in Practice. So it's about how to get science into your practice. Mm -hmm. And on the webpage, if you just go to Society for a Science of Clinical Psychology, go to the webpage on resources. Mm -hmm. There's five interviews that I did with leading scientists describing their up-to-date work and its clinical implications. Probably the best article Article and it's focused on an article. The mm-hmm. one that's gotten the most attention is an interview I did with Michelle Krask,
2: mm.
1: in which she talks about inhibitory learning, which is wow. her model or theory about what goes on during successful exposure based treatment. So, mm-hmm. learning these ideas from Michelle Krask about inhibitory learning is really important, but that's separate. Anyway, if you go to my interviews at the SSCP, that might help you keep up with a few things. I also did an interview with Michael Lambert about progress monitoring. And uh-huh, I did, okay. yeah, I did an interview me. with um, Ed Watkins on uh-huh. rumination focused treatment. Uh-huh. And okay. I did a fantastic interview with Emily Holmes on use of imagery in therapy.
2: Mm.
1: Anyway, so you could listen to my interviews. What else? Okay. Well, I It's. It's. I think it's a good idea to belong to a professional association Mm -hmm. in your field, which then you can be part of their listserv. Yeah. If the association, which many do, publish a journal, Mm -hmm. then you could get the journal. You could. You could get the journal alerts. You could go to the American Psychological Association, look at the journals. Probably the number one journal for clinical psychologists is um, Journal of Consulting and Clinical Psychology. Mm -hmm. Sign up up to get the alerts. Then every time a new issue of the journal is published, they'll send you an alert. They'll send you a list of all the articles. You could read the abstracts. Oh, and nice. you, could get a, you could get a sense of where the field is going and what are some of the findings. And then you could figure out if you want to learn more about it. Go to the conference,
2: mm-hmm. attend
1: the sessions. I think participating in a now. Hello. Hi, Keith, I'm sorry. I hope it's not a problem at my end, but we're having oh. some connectivity problems. Probably,
0: yeah, I don't know what happened, it just dropped. Um... But yeah, so you were talking about, um, you know, being involved with national, um, you know, organizations, attending conferences, you know, all these pieces around, you know, staying up to date. And yeah, no, I think that, you know, uh, as I'm I'm hearing you saying this, it's, you know, it's really about that community and kind of being connected to that community of you know whether it be your local organizations like I know I'm part of the Northern California CBT network or you know there's the national associations um, you know all these kind of pieces uh, are a great way to, to keep up to date and connected. I was wondering too, do you have any recommendations of um, are there any books out there that are good for uh, you know talking about doing research in your private practice uh, or is that a, a book that you are, are going to be writing soon at some point? I think that would be really great.
2: Um,
1: Well, as I told you, I'm working on my article. Here's a book.
2: Yeah. Okay. Cool. Pra-
0: practice-based research: A guide for clinicians. Wonderful. And that's by uh, Trent Cod. Perfect.
1: It's. I have. I have a chapter in this book. It's an edited book. So a, right. a bunch of different clinicians who do research in their practice describe some of the ways they structure their business to support research.
2: Hmm.
1: Um. So that's, that's an idea. Okay. Well, wonderful.
0: Well, Jackie, it's always wonder. Uh, it's always great to catch up with you and hear about what you're doing and kind of what, what the latest is. Uh, thank you so much for taking time today. I really appreciate it.
1: Completely. My pleasure. I had fun. Thank you, Keith.
0: Okay, great. Take care. Okay. You Bye. take
1: care of yourself. Okay. Bye-bye.
0: And actually hold on. Uh, let me, so now we'll cut the tape. Um, okay. so that was great, thank you so much, I appreciate it. How was you are that?
1: Total, you are totally welcome, I enjoyed doing it. So good luck to you with your project. It's a good yeah, project.
0: Definitely, I really appreciate it. And I'll have to look up those interviews and so on that you were mentioning. That sounds like you're also doing some, some cool interviews.
1: Yeah, um, it's fun, isn't
0: it? It is, it's great. It's good to connect with people and kind of hear what's going on. Um, okay, well, thank you so much, I appreciate it.
1: My pleasure.
0: Okay, take care.
1: Have
0: a good one. You too. Bye. Thank you for joining us. If you're wanting to use this podcast to earn continuing education credits, please go to our website at therapyonthecuttingedge.com. Our podcast is brought to you by the Institute for the Advancement of Psychotherapy, providing in person and remote therapy in the San Francisco Bay Area. IAP provides training for licensed clinicians through our in person and online programs, as well as our treatment for children, adolescents, families, couples, and individual adults. For more information, go to sfiap.com or call 415-617-5932. Also, we really appreciate feedback. And if you have something you're interested in, something that's on the cutting edge of the field of therapy and think clinicians should know about it, send us an email or call us. We're always looking for the advancements in the field of psychotherapy to help in creating lasting changes for our clients.